It's amazing how even though when we experience tragedy, whether it's personal, familial, even national tragedy, the feeling of that tragedy initially can be earth-shattering, earth-shaking, and cause us to feel like everything in our lives is turned upside down and inside out. But it's amazing how quickly that feeling can pass and normal life can step back in. Sure, there are ramifications that, that ripple and echo throughout maybe the rest of our lives or the rest of our history. But normal, everyday life pulls us back in. And for the disciples, for the followers of Christ, for the people who walked with Jesus throughout his entire ministry, their entire world had just been turned upside down. They had followed Jesus. They had heard him teach. They had watched him perform miracles from town to town. They had heard all these amazing things about the kingdom of God. But now everything had changed. And in one week, the sounds of the people as he walked into Jerusalem, calling out, Hosanna, God save us, and praising Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem, quickly turned into the mourning of these daughters of Jerusalem, of these women, as they stood by the road, as Jesus was proceeding to the place where he would be crucified and killed. And then in a moment, as Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, as the disciples were scattered all over the city, it felt like what they believed was the beginning of something amazing had ended as quickly as it had begun. And they were left devastated and confused and overwhelmed, but life moved on. And some of the people who followed Jesus were walking together on the road to a place called Emmaus. And they were just talking about some of the things that had happened. And then someone started walking alongside them. And they began thinking about all the things that had happened. And talking about all the things that had taken place. And we're told in the book of Luke that this someone that started walking with them was Jesus. But they were kept from being able to recognize him or see who he was. And they're talking about these events. And I can't imagine what they would be saying or what they would be feeling just trying to talk it all out and process what's going on. And as Jesus is walking alongside him, he says, hey, uh, what are you guys talking about? What, what things, what events are you, are you talking about that have just taken place? And they responded by saying, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened in these past days? And they told him, they said, this is what's happened. They said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. And then listen to what they said here in verse 21 of chapter 24 of Luke. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. But moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when, they did not <clears throat> and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him did they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, 
and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures things concerning himself. And so they're walking with Jesus and they're telling him about all these things. And still, they couldn't quite wrap their minds around it. They couldn't quite believe it. They couldn't quite understand all the things that had taken place. And even though they couldn't recognize him, he explains to them how all of Scripture had pointed to this exact moment. And so they come to this village where they're going to, and they urge this man to stay with them and to keep company with them. And I love how they finally realize it was Jesus. In verse 30, it says, when he was with them at the table, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. What caused them to realize that Jesus, the resurrected Christ, was in their midst was the same thing that had caused them great confusion just a few days earlier as Jesus sits at the table with his disciples and he breaks the bread and he gives it to them. And this is the first interaction they've had with the resurrected Christ. And while that tragedy of the cross on Friday seemed like it had taken everything that they knew and turned it upside down, it had nothing on what was about to take place in their lives. Now that they know what's happening here in verse 34, they say, the Lord has risen indeed. And because of that, everything in their life was about to change And the same is true for each and every one of us. As we've been in the book of Luke, we've been focusing in on the teachings of Christ now for 36 weeks. As Jesus has taught us about the kingdom of God, what it means, and how we should live as members of that kingdom. The fact that this kingdom is open to anyone and all who would come in and trust in Christ. And we can come in no matter what we've done, no matter where we've come from, that he gives this invitation to come and to follow him. And now we're going to see on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to hear Jesus teach us more about the kingdom of God and how we should live and how we should move as people who are not only a part of the kingdom of God, but who have a king who has been raised from the dead and who lives and reigns in and through us. And so as we look at this today... We're going to be careful not to just assume that we are the original audience as Jesus is saying these things specifically to the disciples. But it's also important to realize that these aren't just instructions for a few good men in this generation right after the resurrection, but these are marching orders for the kingdom. And so we are going to see how Jesus instructs us to live as a people who believe that not only that Christ died to offer forgiveness for sins, but that he raised from the dead again to give us an assurance of our hope and a promise of an eternity with him and the calling to go out and to see that kingdom grow and that kingdom expand through our lives, through our work, and through our actions. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. Picking up at the end of this story as Jesus appears to these disciples. And we're going to look at verses 36 through 53. This is the word of God. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. 
And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that I myself, that is myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. May God add his blessing and favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God. I thank you so much for this passage for so many reasons. First and foremost, and most obviously, because it tells us that Christ is not dead, but Christ is risen indeed. And that because of that resurrection, we can have an assurance of our hope that we put in you, and that we can know that if we have put our faith in you, that the old is past, the new has come, that we have been forgiven, and that you have a plan for us long beyond this life, but that we will spend eternity with you that we will experience the same resurrection that Christ received. But God, I also thank you for the disciples in this passage and the doubts and the insecurities that they felt. And that in spite of all of that, Jesus was gentle and kind and just called them to see and believe. And so, Father, today as we talk about the resurrection, if there is any doubt in our hearts, I pray that you would remove that and that you would quiet that doubt so that we could see the beauty of the resurrection and know for certain that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he said he did. And because of that, we are who you say we are. And so teach us to walk in that. And to live lives that honor and reflect and follow after Christ as we go out to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Because I have a tendency to be a touch socially awkward, there are certain experiences and interactions that I hate more than others. One of those is when I walk into a room or a building and there's only one other person there and they don't know that I've come in. I know what's going to happen here because there's no way that you cannot scare that person. It doesn't matter how gentle you try to be. It doesn't matter how 
careful you try to be to make sure that you do something to help them know that you're there. What's going to happen is you are going to say something to them. You're going to tap them on the shoulder, knock on the wall, knock on the door, and you're going to scare them, and you're going to be uncomfortable, and you're going to apologize, and they're going to say it's okay, even though they're a little frustrated, even though they know it's not really your fault because you couldn't help it. And then you have about a 30 to 45 second gap where you just stare at each other awkwardly and hope the situation ends and then walk away like nothing happened. And these are things that I think about late at night. And that seems to be a little bit what happens here. I don't know if Luke intended for this passage of Scripture to be as humorous as I find it, but I think everything that Jesus does through this entire chapter as he's coming in and out and and appearing to the disciples and then disappearing and using this new resurrection body and all of the ways that it can happen, everything that happens here is just delightfully funny and awkward, especially what happens here in verse 36. The disciples had just seen Jesus They were eating a meal with him. He broke the bread, and then boom, as soon as they realize it, he's gone. And of course, they're talking about it because it's weird. And they don't know how to process it, and they don't know how to understand it. And so they're talking about all these things. And Luke just says, as casually and normally, that Jesus stood among them, and seemingly they don't have any idea that he's there. And so no matter what he does, it's obviously going to scare them. And so it's super funny because he chooses the words peace to you and it brings anything but peace to them because now Jesus who just a few moments ago they believed was dead and gone and all their hope dead and gone with him is standing in the room with them they didn't know he was there so they were going to be scared if anybody said anything but now Jesus says peace to you and they all freak out because they assume that he must be a spirit but aside from the delightfulness of how Jesus makes his presence known. There's also some importance here. Because when we read this phrase, when Jesus says, peace to you, it should sound familiar. If you've been with us through the entire book of Luke, especially at the very beginning, these words should seem very familiar. Because in Luke chapter 1, verse 30, One of these stories that we're going to be reading a lot over the next couple days as we celebrate the Christmas season. We have this young girl named Mary. And an angel appears to her. He says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But verse 29 says she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And then listen to what the angel says. In verse 30 says, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. Again, in chapter 2, verse 10, there were some shepherds hanging out just outside of where Jesus was born. These men who were not high in society, who had very little to offer, were probably uneducated and had made a series of choices that led to them being shepherds. It was not a job that people would have wanted to be a part of and certainly were unlikely candidates to be the first people outside of the family to be told that the Christ had come into the world. In chapter 2, verse 10, some angels appear to these shepherds, and of course, they would have been horrified. But the first words that the angel says, were fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. So Jesus knew what he was saying. 
Because as we look through the Gospel of Luke, every time the kingdom of God is pronounced in its infancy, first when the king was coming into the world as a baby, and now on this moment after the resurrection as Jesus is appearing to all of his disciples, every time the kingdom of God is announced in its infancy, it's pronounced under the banner of peace be with you. Don't fear. Don't worry. The goodness of God has come. And so Jesus makes this declaration that the kingdom of God has come into the world and that he is with his people under the banner of peace and not fear and assurance and not judgment. Because he could have looked at them and he could have said, are you kidding me? How long have we been together? Have you not heard all of the things that I've been telling you? I have been giving you the insights into the kingdom of God. I've spoken in parables to everybody else, but to you I've spoken plainly. And so you should have known that I had to go to Jerusalem to suffer. I told you that I had to die, but I told you that that wasn't the end of the story. Why are you so shocked? Why can't you get it? But instead, he says, peace be to you. He quieted their fears. And he gave them an invitation to come and see. He says, listen, I know this is unbelievable. I know you don't know how to process what's happening right in front of you. I know that I told you all these things, but to hear them and to believe them is two very different things. And so I know you're struggling with this right now. I know that your hearts are filled with doubt and trouble. And so touch me and see. Look at my hands and look at my feet. You can know that I'm not a spirit and this isn't a delusion because you can put your hands on me and you can see the wounds that were given to me on the cross and you can know that what you see is real. And we have that same calling today. The first mission, the first instructions that we have as people on this side of the resurrection, is the same the disciples had. We are called to see and believe. To not simply hear the message of the gospel and think that it's a good thought or a nice thing, but to pay attention and understand that when we say that Jesus died and then three days rose again, that this is not metaphorical, that this is not some sort of symbolism, that Luke is telling us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became one of us for us, stepped into time and space and died on a Roman cross, breathed his last, was buried, and then three days later bodily rose again from the grave. And that is the core of our faith. Our first response to the resurrection is to see and believe and to know and not fear. And so if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ before, you want to know what the cornerstone of Christianity is, this is it. That there is a God who loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, that he became the incarnate God, Emmanuel, God with us, and that Jesus walked and taught and healed and proclaimed the good news to the poor, and then at the exact right moment in history went to a cross to suffer and die once and for all. And that anyone who believes in Christ, the Bible tells us that we can be forgiven by his death on the cross. 
that all of our sins, all of our mistakes, all of our decisions that we've made that have been harmful and destructive and rebellious to God, all of those things can be forgiven and we could be made new. But not only that, we believe that Christ was raised from the dead. The New Testament calls him the first fruits of new creation. And that if we believe in Jesus, that not only are our sins forgiven, but we have the promise that what happened to Jesus will one day happen to us, that there will be a time when we breathe our last, but that's not the end of our story, because we will be present with Christ for all of eternity, because our spirits are made alive, and then one day, Jesus, the same Christ who died and rose again, will come again to bring heaven to earth and to give us that same bodily resurrection. And it is a lot to believe, but it is good news for those who do. And so if you've never put your faith in Christ or you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus and to be saved by this King, then I want to encourage you to not leave today before you talk with me or one of our other elders or small group leaders about what it means to be saved by God's grace. And it'll be a good time to do it because next week we have baptisms, which show us that beautiful picture of salvation as we get to baptize two of our people who have trusted in Christ and followed after Jesus. If you're here and you've trusted in Christ, then our response should be the same as the disciples. I love what Luke says in verse 41, because after all this happens, he says, and they were, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he started talking to them. You see, they were still having trouble wrapping their minds around it. There were still parts of them that just couldn't believe that all of this was true, but they disbelieved for joy. They said, all of this that he promised us, all of it is real, and it's certainly hard to wrap your mind around all of that, but they were marveling at the beauty of the resurrection of Christ, and in the same way, we should do that as well. I love, Amy, is you were talking about this prayer time, and you talked about these things that if you grow up in and around or anywhere near a church, you might hear that God is good and that God loves you, but it's another thing to truly believe those. And the same thing is true about the message of the resurrection. It's one thing to recite the old creed that says Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. But it's another thing to really believe that. And it's something that when we really think about it should always cause us to disbelieve for joy and to marvel at what God has done for us. We should look at this message of the resurrection and say, how could this possibly be? How could something so wonderful and so amazing actually be true? And then we should marvel at the fact that it is. And so Christian, if you're here today and you have put your faith in Christ and you have been through baptism, let's not ever let the message of the resurrection grow cold in our hearts, but every single day be overwhelmed with amazement of what God has done for us. And all of this happens. Jesus says, you can touch my hands and you can see all of this. And he begins to show them all this amazing stuff that's taken place after the resurrection. And they were overcome with joy and marveling. And then Jesus wants some fish. I love the way that Luke writes this passage. It's so wonderful. It's supernatural and natural and all these things wrapped up into one. And Jesus looks at him. He says, do you have anything for me to eat? And they give him some fish. And Jesus eats, and then everything changes. 
Because after that, then it's time to get down to business. In verse 44, Jesus begins to teach. And he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus says, everything, all of this, what's happening right now in your presence is everything that I've been trying to teach you. And not only is it everything that I've been trying to teach you, but it's everything that the law and the prophets and the Psalms and everything that's been written long before I came into this world, all of these things were written so that you could know that exactly what is happening right now would happen. But we could look at that, much like I imagine the disciples did, and say, well, Jesus... Your New Testament, right? And they wouldn't have known that word yet, but they would have had the same basic idea. These are all things that have happened before. The law and the prophets and the Psalms, these were written hundreds and thousands of years ago before right now. How could these things possibly be about you? And then in verse 45, it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. These were men that were raised under the law. These were all men of Jewish heritage, and so they would have learned the law. They would have memorized portions of the Torah, of the first five books of what we now call the Old Testament. They would hear about the prophets, especially during this time. If you remember way back to the beginning of this series, when we talked about some of the cultural and historical backgrounds that were going on during this time, people were itching for the Messiah. They had been reading the prophets and they believed that this was the generation and this was the season in which the Messiah was going to make his grand entrance. And so these men would have been incredibly well versed on the prophets. They would have known the Psalms intimately. And now for the first time in their lives, they're really seeing them in the fullness. Because that resurrection was the key that unlocked everything that had been written before. And all of a sudden they realized that everything that God had spoken to his people was about Jesus. And we see this in Matthew's gospel. Matthew writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, making the case that Jesus is the Messiah, is constantly taking phrases out of the law and out of the Old Testament prophets and saying, see, this thing that you thought was just about Israel is actually about Christ and what he's going to do and how he's going to bring salvation into the world. And what we find here is that the resurrection of Christ illuminates the Old Testament and shapes our hearts to see the full story of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. I love the old phrase by Augustine when he's describing how we should understand Scripture and how the Old Testament and the New Testament work together. And he said that the new is in the old concealed. And the old is in the new revealed. Basically telling us that everything that the Old Testament communicated was pushing us towards what the New Testament would show us in full. Everything in the Old Testament, every sign, every moment, everything that happened in the history of Israel before the coming of Christ was designed so that the reader could look at that and say, this is pointing us towards something better. And then the New Testament says, all of that stuff that you read, all of that stuff that you pillaged through, all of that was about Jesus. And here's what it means. And here's how you understand it. It's one of the reasons why I love Books like Hebrews and Revelation so much. 
because they serve as this bridge between the two worlds. Matthew, in the same way, showing us how the things of the Old Testament were teaching us about Christ and that God has had this one perfect and good plan to bring salvation into the world since before its foundation. And so this is how we should see Scripture. One of the things that the resurrection calls us to do is to see all of Scripture in light of Christ. And when we're reading the New Testament where it's obvious and the Old Testament where it's a little harder to find, we should be looking for Christ in all of the scriptures and recognizing God's good plan as we see it laid out from start to finish. And in a few weeks, we're going to get a chance to go all the way to the beginning because our next sermon series that will begin probably the second week of January is going to be going through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we're going to see the character of God who stays the same and how even in the beginning Christ was active and working along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit to bring all things into fruition that they had planned from the very beginning. And so we need to see and believe and trust in the resurrection. And that should change the way that we see and understand Scripture. And then he tells us about the importance of proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of proclaiming the gospel. I remember when I was a kid, one of my extended family kind of relatives, I actually don't remember who it was at this point, but gave me a book, just a children's picture book. But there was something really unique about this book because this book had my name in it. And not just my name, because Chris was a pretty common name around this time. In my ninth grade geography class, I had five Chris's in my geography, five of us. It was a very confusing season. And also geography has a lot of color pencils, and sometimes I have a different uh, trouble telling the difference from one color to the other, with color pencils in particular. And so I was constantly in this state of confusion with trying to figure out what colors were and what Chris they were talking to. That class was a very big struggle for me. But Chris was a very common name, and so it wouldn't have been uncommon to see my name in a book, but this book had both of my names in it. Chris Dills. There are fewer of those. Not a lot of dills roaming around. And so this book had my name in it. And now, listen, if you're of a certain age, this is not a big deal to you because, yes, we live in a generation now where I can hop on Adidas's website and I can get a pair of shoes with my name blasted all over them. And so it's not that special, but this was 1989. And this was a book, a paper book that was bound and published that had my name in it. And I thought it was the coolest thing that I'd ever experienced. And even though we live in a world where you can customize and put yourself into a wide variety of things, there's still something thrilling about being part of the story. Newspapers are dying, but if you get your name in one, you're going to buy that newspaper and you're going to put it on the wall because it's just a cool thing, unless you did something wrong, and then you might not want that on your wall so much. But usually we want to see our name in print, and we want to be part of the story. Now imagine how amazing it would be to be part of God's story. Well, you don't have to imagine. Because in verse 46, Jesus continues. So 45, he says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Got it. That makes sense. All of scripture is about Jesus. From the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, there was this promise that God was going to send one of his own, that he was going to send this Messiah, this chosen one, into the world to undo the effects of sin and break the curse in our lives. Yes, that makes sense. God had this plan before the foundations of the earth. 
But then he continues. He says, it's written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. Jesus looks at these disciples and he says, not only am I part of the plan, Not only was it written generations and hundreds and thousands of years before this moment, everything that I was going to do, not only am I part of the story, but you're part of the story as well. Because I'm going to do all these things, and now it's your turn to go and to fulfill your part of the story, your part of the prophecy, to go out and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom everywhere you go. And that same thing is true. For any other person who takes on the work of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, that we are living out the work that the Old Testament prophets and the law saw long before we existed. In fact, Paul says that we are saved by Jesus, by grace alone, so that no one could boast that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but we can be made alive in Christ so that we can walk in good works that were designed for us before the foundation of of the world. Each and every one of us, that was nice, have this incredible part in God's story. All of us have work to do, and not just work that we receive the minute that we follow after Christ, but work that had been laid out for us and prophesied since before the foundation of the world, and we get to be a part of what God is doing. And this message, this work, that we have to do is the same that Christ began his ministry with. Jesus said it's written that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And remember the first sermon that Jesus went from village to village preaching is to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, that it's time to recognize your sin and turn from that because something better is coming. And that's the message that we're called to proclaim as well. To go out into a world that is lost and broken and hurting and say it is time to repent, to turn away from the stuff that doesn't satisfy us, the stuff that takes us away from God, and to trust in the forgiveness of Christ and walk in this new life. But what could possibly give us the right to take up that mantle? How could we feel worthy to pick up and take on the work that Jesus started because Lord knows we're not him? But Jesus says, well, you, in verse 48, are witnesses of these things. The reason why we're able to go out and to preach the good news of the kingdom, to tell people about repentance and forgiveness, is because we are witnesses of those things. We have experienced those things. If you've put your faith in Christ, you know what it means to repent and to turn away from sin and to trust in Jesus. And you know how God can take our lives, no matter how broken and flawed, and he calls us and welcomes us into his family and then cleans us up and sends us out to do good works. And so, of course, there is no one better to go out and to preach the message of repentance and forgiveness than people who have repented and been forgiven. And how could we witness something so awesome? How could we witness something so marvelous and so wonderful and so breathtaking and not want to go out and proclaim it? If we really genuinely believe 
that not only did Jesus die that we could be forgiven, but also that we've become sons and daughters of God and that we will spend the rest of eternity with Christ perfected in glory. If we believe that to be true, how could we not tell everyone about it? And this is our job. It's our mission. It's our purpose to take what Christ has given us and to give it away. To continue Christ's work of proclaiming that message. It starts with words because Jesus' ministry started with words. To tell people about Christ and what he's done and how they can be saved. But also to do the work that Jesus did. To reach out to those who were overlooked and oppressed. To care for widows and orphans and people in need. To welcome sinner and saint alike in love with an unconditional love the way that Christ has loved us. And put on display a picture of the kingdom of God and call people to enter into it. For the disciples that began in Jerusalem. And we'll see, we see in the book of Acts how that just takes off. And if you want to know what happens after the resurrection and after Christ gives them this power, you can look in the book of Acts and see the church take fire and start to spread throughout the region as men and women and boys and girls were going out proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. For them, it began in Jerusalem. And for us, it begins right here. It begins in homes with parents or spouses or children who don't know Christ. It begins in the places where we go to work. It begins in the places where we go to school, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. It begins in the place in which God has planted us, where we share that good news of the kingdom and we reach out and we love like Christ has loved. And then individually and as a church, we start to spread that message out to the rest of our city, state, country, and even to the ends of the world. We have a calling to continue the work of Christ and proclaim the kingdom of God, and to let people know that through repentance we can find forgiveness because Christ has died, but Christ is risen and will come again. But this is big work, and it can feel overwhelming for an individual. It can feel overwhelming for even a small church like ours. It can feel overwhelming for big churches. It can feel overwhelming for all of us together as Christians all over the world. But while this is big work, Jesus has a bigger plan. And I think it's important here to remember who these disciples were. When Jesus called these disciples, they were nothing special. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were, one in one case, a religious zealot. They were people who didn't have a whole lot of move or sway in society and had nothing to offer. And yet now Jesus is taking the keys to the kingdom and he's placing it in their hands. He's taking this work that seemed like no one else would ever be able to do anything like it, and he's giving it to the most unlikely candidates. But he's sending help. And in verse 49, he says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You see, the resurrection not only seals salvation, but it clothes us in power through the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus says time and time again through the Gospels, and then we see it fully in the book of Acts, that I'm not sending you out to do this by yourself, but I'm sending you a helper, that the Holy Spirit of God is going to come, and he is going to dwell within you, and he is going to work in you and through you and for you to help you do things that you never could have thought possible. And we see that as Peter 
who did something that I imagine would have hurt more than the betrayal of Judas. As Peter, who is this man that confessed Jesus to be the Son of God and the Lord of all creation, when Jesus was at his weakest, when Jesus was at his most desperate place, Peter was walking through the town denying that he ever knew him. And yet in Acts chapter 2, we see Peter stand before a congregation in Jerusalem and he begins preaching the first Christian sermon with power and authority and thousands of people trust in Christ because of the work of this wishy-washy fisherman who left Jesus behind when things got tight. Because that's the power of the resurrection and that's the power of the Holy Spirit working in God's people. And so we need to remember that Jesus died to make us worthy. And that he rose to give us life. And then he sent the Spirit of God to give us the ability to do what we never thought possible. And so you may be here saying, I don't know how to make a difference for the kingdom. I don't know what I can do. I don't have these obvious gifts or skills. I don't know how God could ever use me because I don't have what it takes. And you're right, you don't, but he does. And because of the Holy Spirit, all of us, even though we have nothing to offer God, he equips us for good work so that we can go out and see the kingdom come. This is our calling. Jesus, our king, gave us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And he calls us in to be a part of that kingdom through his own work. And as we've seen through this entire study of the book of Luke, it is not about what we do that Jesus did everything for us, that he earned our salvation for us. So all we have to do is follow and walk in that salvation and receive it by grace. And then on the other side of that salvation, he gives us work to do. And he calls us to walk in light of the kingdom. And now it's our job to proclaim that kingdom by sharing the good news of the gospel with those that we love and those that we don't even know by doing the work of the kingdom, by loving and caring for those in need, and putting our hands to service the way that Christ served us. And so let's go. We've heard it all now. We've seen Jesus teach us what it means to live as part of the kingdom of God. And so let's go and let the world know that the kingdom has come, and its king is a savior, merciful and kind, who loves us as we are and changes us into what? We could never be. Let's pray.